And so last week, Carson actually talked to us about Abba Father, because we're in the middle of this series. We're actually week seven today. We're exploring these names of God, these, these names that are giving us depth and insight to the character and nature of who God is. And Carson explored Abba Father, and all those are available online if you're just catching up. But I'm excited to have all other voices that are able to share a lot of these things with us this morning. So if you're here for the first time, we do want to tell you, we're really glad you're here. Uh, you're going to be picking up in week seven in this sort of series. We're exploring the idea of who God is to the names that have been given to him in scripture, both by others and by himself. And we're stepping into a, uh, a name today that is, we're going to see uncovered the first time in Genesis chapter 16, but really carries its characteristics all throughout scripture. And it's the idea of real God's real omniscience, which is the picture of God seeing all things, knowing all all things and caring about all things. So it's there's a real depth there. And it's the name El, it's the name El Roy. And in 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 Hebrew, the name El we know is God. We talked about that week one. And Roy is actually translated as the one who sees me. So the translation of this name is the God who sees me or the God who sees. Brandon tried to tell me that in Spanish it means El Roy means the Roy, but uh, just it's a good Spanish joke for those of you that are out there. Um, but it does. No, he didn't say. Um, yeah, the Roy, right? Thank you. Spanish speakers up front get it. The Roy. I killed in the car on the way here, by the way. Um, no. Uh, so anyway, so it means the God who sees or the God who sees me. And it's going to be an experience through the lens of really one woman who has spent a majority of her life being wounded and outcast and mistreated and how God is going to show her this sort of beautiful love and grace that he not only has for her, but that he cares about her, knows her suffering, and loves her. And I think it's a beautiful rescue story of a God who knows us, knows when we hurt, and longs to um, heal our hearts. And so it's a, it's a great picture of sort of God's character when it comes to his caring and his, his nature of, of knowing us and caring about us and wanting to relieve our pain and our struggle in the midst of a very difficult time in her life. So we're going to be in the book of Genesis chapter 16, and we're going to look at it from a bunch of different angles because there's a lot going on here. We're going to cover the entire story, Hagar's entire story. So if you're not familiar with it, you're going to get real familiar with it today. And we're going to look at it through the lens of some things that have gone wrong, we're going to look at it through the lens of Hagar's heart, and we're going to look at it through the lens of El Roy, or the God who sees and the promises that he gives. And so we're going to take it from a few different angles this morning. And so by the time we get done and head out to do our baptisms and fun stuff like that, you'll be real familiar with the story. And hopefully somewhere along the way, you're going to find yourself in one of these places um, that we're going to discover this morning. So as you're getting there, let's take a few moments and uh, let's pray. So as you're flipping over to Genesis chapter 16 or finding it on your phone or however you choose to, to walk along with us in Scripture, uh, let's take a moment and let's pray. And then let's dive headlong into the story that really is a beautiful picture of, of God's love and his grace and his provision. Lord, we, great, we are so grateful that we get to gather in this place and open your word together. We recognize that this is a complete privilege there are, are places and people all over the world that don't get this privilege. They don't get to gather together in worship. Either they don't have access or it's forbidden or they're living in places where uh, community is hard to come by. And, uh, Lord, we are, we're grateful. We take it for granted so much in our Western culture, the, the ability that we have to gather. And so we're reminded this morning of our believing brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, Lord, those that are living in hostile communities, those friends that we've made over the years in China, the missionaries that we have in Egypt, the missionaries we have in France, the missionaries that we support all over the world, God, we, we ask for favor upon them as they gather or attempt to gather together and share the gospel and make believers. We've become very comfortable in our Christian lives. Um, 
here, right here where we sit. And so, Lord, I pray this morning on some level you'd make us a little uncomfortable. You'd challenge some of our paradigms. Um, you'd convict our hearts. Uh, but more than anything, what you do is you'd show us your grace and your promise. And that we would understand what it means that we love and serve a God who sees me, who knows my suffering, who knows where I am, where my heartbreak is, and makes great promises and provision. For God, you are a God who truly sees us. There's nothing that escapes you. And so God, when we hurt, you hurt. When we suffer, you suffer. God, when we celebrate, you celebrate. And so Lord, I pray that those truths would ring true this morning as we open your word and we explore this, this story of Hagar and Abram and Sarai, Lord, and that you would teach our hearts. Take a moment as you sit here this morning before we open God's word and just ask him to just do something in your heart, to teach you something, to move in you, just to, to render your heart in his hands this morning. Ask the Lord to teach you. Take a moment and pray for someone around you, behind you. Maybe you don't know their names or, you know, just met them this morning. We like to do this. Everything that unfolds on a Sunday morning is not about you. We want you to be in the habit of praying for other people. So take a moment. Pray for the people around you. Maybe your husband, your wife, your kids, or a friend, or just a guest. And just, just pray for them. Pray that God would move in them. Care about their spiritual well-being. Lord, we turn this morning over to you. Uh, we don't invite you in this place. You're already here, Lord. We literally just submit to your spirit. There's nowhere that we can go that you are not, for you are uh, omniscient and omnipresent. You are everywhere, and you know all things. And so, God, we, we lay our lives in your hands, and we ask you to teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're not familiar with the story of Hagar and Abram and Sarah, who are also Abraham and Sarah, I will get them mixed up a dozen times this morning. And so they're the same people given different names. So if we go back and forth, don't sweat it. It's all good. It's not heresy. So uh, Abram and Sarai, Abram will later become Abraham and Sarah. They are the, 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 basically the result of God's great promise. He has promised Abraham. If you remember in our study three weeks ago of Adonai, uh, God is Lord, right? That, that we serve God as Lord. He is our, our ruler and authority. That God has promised Abram. He has promised him that his descendants will outnumber the stars in the universe. He actually takes him outside and shows him the stars and says, don't be afraid. You will have heirs and descendants that outnumber all of these stars. And he gives them this incredible and great promise. And so Abraham or Abram is living into this promise that God has given him. And we're going to pick up in a situation in which God is going to demonstrate his character and nature through an Egyptian maidservant. Um, and he's going to give us this picture of a name of God that really whispers incredible truth. That's going to tell us that not only does he know us and knows our suffering, but cares for us and wants to provide and, uh, and relieve us. So let's take a look at it together, and then we're going to work through it in pieces. Like I mentioned, we're going to look through it in three different angles. We're going to look at it through the problems and pitfalls. We're going to look at it through the heart of Hagar, and we're going to look at it through the lens or the eyes of God, El Roy, the God who sees me. And we're going to look at his promises and provisions. But let's read the story together. It says this, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Now, if you remember chapter 15 from just a few weeks ago, we know all this. Abraham had already, or Abraham had already gone to God and said, I can't, I'm not going to have any kids. I'm getting really old, and I'm afraid. And God said, don't be afraid. 
there's going to be an heir that comes from you. It's not going to be a servant. It's going to come from you and takes him outside and shows him that great thing. So he's, we just know that this is really anxious in Abraham and Sarah's heart, or Abram and Sarah, Sarah's heart. So now Sarah and Abra, Abra, Abraham's, Abram's wife, excuse me, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build my family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. And so after Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant, and she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram says. Do with her whatever you want and whatever you think is best. And then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. An angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants and they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child. You will have a son and you will name him Ishmael. And the Lord heard your misery and he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and he will live in hostility towards his brothers. And she gave it is named to the Lord who spoke to her. You are God, the God who sees me, she said. For I have now seen the one who sees me. And that is why the well is called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. And so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar born Ishmael. It's a weird story, right? Like just a, one that just in our cultural mindset is just so uneasy for us to kind of understand. And so we've got to think a little bit Hebrew. We have to think a little bit of what's happening contextually and culturally. And, and Sarah and Abraham, or Sarah and Abram, are really nervous that they can't have kids. In fact, it's weighing so deeply on Abram's heart that in chapter 15 he goes to the Lord and he says, Why are you punishing me? I'm going to have to give my entire inheritance to a servant in my household or something because you won't give me any kids. And again, this is really lost on us, right? Because our culture is so different. But in those kind of, that culture, that Middle Eastern culture, it was so important to be able to have sons to pass on legacy and family and all these things. And, and Abram and Sarai are old and they're not having kids and they're concerned about it. But God came to Abram and he said, I promise you, you're going to have an heir. Well, Sarah and Abraham, they don't necessarily believe it or maybe they just forgot. And so they go get really anxious and Sarah says, God's essentially punishing me. I'm, I can't have any kids. We got to figure out a plan. And so she says, I've got this maidservant that Pharaoh gave us when we were in Egypt. He basically gave us a slave girl. And here's what you can do. I can give her to you and you can take her as your wife and you can sleep with her and we'll create our own family. And Abram's like, all right, whatever. I mean, it's basically what he says. Okay. 
And so they do that. They lived there for about 10 years or so. And Sarai says, take her. And Abram takes her as his wife, Hagar, and he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. And then she begins to despise Sarah. Now, we really don't know why. There could be some cultural things here. Maybe the idea is that she's got a better place now. She's now Abram's wife, and she's pregnant, and Sarah is old. And so, or maybe Sarah, as we're going to learn, really mistreats her. And so Hagar doesn't really like her. But either way, she just begins to not like Sarah in in a very kind of noticeable way. Now, she probably doesn't say much because she's still a servant girl, but it's noticeable that she has some contempt or pride that's kind of built up. Well, Sarah hates it, right? So she goes to Abram and she's like, what have you done? I gave you this girl and now she's mad at me because you got her pregnant. And he's like, I don't know. It's just the weirdest situation, right? Because now Sarah is mad because Hagar is pregnant and angry at Sarah. And so she takes it out on Abraham. Have you been married? You see how this loop works, right? You always get mad at your wife for something she didn't do or she's mad at you for something you didn't do. We're taking it out on each other. Not in this particular context is a little weirder than most of you experienced, but, right? But you see what's happening. She's mad that she gave Hagar to Abram. Abram did what she asked, and the outcome wasn't what she liked. And so she goes to Abram, she goes, God's going to have to judge us because, man, you really messed this up. He's like, what? I, I, I don't know. Uh, I got two wives. That's what he's thinking right now. He's going, ah, this is weird, right? Weird. And so Abram's like, well, look, she's your servant, but he's also... Abram's wife. He's like, look, she's your servant, so just take care of it however you want to take care of it. Like, I don't, I got other things to do. It's just so weird. And so she says, okay. And she begins to mistreat Hagar. We don't know really what's wrapped up in that word. It's really pregnant with some meaning that we'll get to in a moment. But, but she begins to mistreat her enough that Hagar runs, flees, takes off into the desert, pregnant, makes it out to this well, Beher Lahai Roy, which essentially means the well of the one who is living and sees me. Right? That's what that means in Hebrew. Still basically named that. And she just falls down at this well. It's, not, it's more of a spring in the desert is really what it is. And the angel of the Lord right, appears to Hagar and says, Hagar, why are you running? Or where are you running from and where are you going to? Of course, the angel of the Lord, God himself, knows but he has this conversation with her at the well. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? And she's basically saying, I'm running for my life or I'm running from the mistreatment of my, my mistress, uh, Sarah. And the angel Lord says to her, I want you to return. And I want you to be a, you know, submit to her and I want you to obey her and I'm going to bless you. And you're carrying a son and you're going to name Ishmael and I'm going to make your offspring incredibly numerous. But there's going to be some challenges because Ishmael's going to be the result of Abram's and Sarai's disobedience. And so he's going to be a wild donkey of a man, right? Which is just an awesome phrase, right? It's wild. And brothers are going to fight against him and all kinds of things. There's all unbelievable historical things that unfold between Ishmael. And anyway, it's a great story later on. But he's basically saying that I'm going to bless you with all these descendants, but it's going to, there's going to be some challenges in there. But I see you. And I know you're suffering. I can see you're suffering. And I will provide for you and take care of you. And she looks up basically at this angel of the Lord and she says, you are El Roy, right? You are the God who sees me. And then she has this incredible line where she says, I have seen the God who sees me. And we'll get to why this is so incredibly important in a moment. And so what does she do? She gets up and she returns to Sarai, tells Abram to name this child Ishmael, which is what God told him to name it. And he does, and Abram is 86 and Again, this is not the promised offspring that would be Isaac that comes later. 
Brandon's talked about that. If you remember the sacrifice of Isaac, he is going to be the promised heir and the one that God has promised. And so there's going to be a lot of great historical things that come out of Ishmael and Isaac and all these kind of pieces. But for our story today, I want to focus on this idea of what's happening here, why there are challenges, what's going on with Hagar and what God does in the middle of it, right? Because it's a really complicated, wild story in which we're trying to figure out what's really unfolding. The first thing we've got to understand about the story is we have to come to grips with the realities of the pitfalls and problems. Because a lot of things that lead up to this name, El Roy, that we're going to be kind of focusing on, but there's, a, there's about four of them that I can see that are glaringly obvious. And I want to mention them because I think we have to pay attention to them because they are things that so easily creep up in our own lives and can destroy. And they lead us to a place of, of not being able to fully trust God or engage with God, which is what led all of this off the rails in the first place. And I want to mention those pitfalls before we get into the heart of, of Hagar and God's promises, because I want you to see them. And the first of those pitfalls or problems is that both Abram and Sarai become impatient while waiting on the Lord. Now, if anybody had the, had the sort of, had, should have had the right or the... Um, the sort of wherewithal to trust God, it would be Abram. Abram has been at a place where God has been leading him and providing him for years. He calls him out of the land, leads him into a new place, basically covers him with the promise of Mechizedek, does all kinds of incredible things, providing for him all along the way. Abraham in chapter 15 goes back before the Lord and he says, why have you forgotten me? I'm gonna have no heirs. And God says, yes, you are. Not only are you, walk with me. And he takes him outside in the vision. He says, see the billions of stars. Your descendants are going to outnumber these. I promise. And that's when Abram looks up at the angel Lord and he says, Adonai. Right? In other words, God, Lord, I trust you. So if anybody has this sort of movement to trust God, it's, it's Abram. But they're waiting on God's promises. And Abram's not getting any younger. In fact, he's 86 when Hagar has Ishmael. He'll be much older when they have Isaac or when he and Sarah have Isaac. But they're impatient. They begin to want to do it on their own. Listen to Sarah's words here, right? Listen to what she says in 1 and 2. It says, when they were, uh, when he, let's see, when now when Abram's wife, right, bore him no children, right, but she knew she had an Egyptian maidservant, and she said, perhaps I can build my family through her. So Abram has certainly told Sarah what God has told him. He's promised. But they become so impatient that Sarah says, I'll do it on my own. Like I can take matters into my own hands. I will build my family through her. Because she becomes so impatient, Abram becomes so impatient waiting on God, they decided to go ahead and work to the ends that they wanted on their own. I've got a plan. I will, I will make it happen because I need this so desperately. So you can see the beginning of the flaw thinking, which is God has promised but God is taking too long, so I'll do it. Now, you may have been there, right? God has promised to lead us. He's promised to give us this, or at least God has promised that he would never leave me and forsake me, or we'd be praying that God would show us where to go next. We become impatient with the lack of movement, and so we just take it into our own hands and try and create the outcome that we want. That's exactly what's happening here. So Sarah and Abraham decide that they're going to take matters into their own hands, and it's not illegal what they did. Technically in those days, this was a legal move to take a, a servant and bring her into the family and have children that way. It was, it was unusual, but it wasn't illegal in a sense. And so they just became impatient waiting on God. It's the first problem that we see. Second problem that we really see kind of comes from Hagar. She gets 
she really allows some pride to interrupt her heart, right? To kind of creep in. And this is a kind of a, I don't really understand where all this comes from, but you can kind of see it if you think about it. Like, Hagar's a servant. She's a maid servant. She was given to, the, to Sarah by Pharaoh. In other words, she's been handed off by someone to someone else. And Sarah comes to her without giving her a choice, saying, would you like to? She's saying, you now will sleep with my husband and become his wife too, and you're going to give him a child. And Sarah, as a servant's response, is essentially has to be a yes. These aren't choices. And so she does that, and when she gets pregnant, she gets bitter, or she gets prideful, or she begins to maybe see her position as better than Sarah, or she finally has a leg up over Sarah to kind of be like, I've got this to provide for what is now our husband, essentially, and you can't do that. And so the mistreatment maybe that Sarah had been doing, or maybe who knows there, Hagar was repaying with bitterness or pride or something, but she allows it to creep in. It becomes a problem. Now, I'm not saying she should love her plot in life, but it does happen, and pride creeps into her heart, and she begins to despise Sarah. Now, right or wrong, how she got there doesn't really matter. The fact that her heart is now despising her is going to create some problems. Truth for us, reality is, is that pride creeps in and it causes all kinds of problems. It doesn't start to cause problems. It does it slowly over time. Pride, right, comes before the fall. Essentially, that's the saying. But the reality is pride leads to resentment and resentment leads to death. So I tell our couples in premarital counseling all the time, right, as you're starting off your marriage, pride leads to resentment, and resentment leads to death. Marriage is about humility. It's about death to self. It's the core of the gospel. When you begin to die to yourself, take your pride out of the picture, right? Fall in love with your spouse the way you're called to fall in love with Christ and the way that he loves the church. Things have a way of working out. But when you love yourself and what you need and what you think you deserve, um, pride enters the picture. Pride leads to resentment. Resentment leads to death. Marriage shatters. But at the end of the day, that's kind of what's happening with Hagar. So we have the second issue. She lets pride clip in or creep in. But then we have no accountability for Sarah or Abraham. They take no responsibility and they take no accountability, which is really fascinating, right? Because we hold Abram, and rightly so, as like one of the fathers of the faith. Like he is a stalwart in terms of looking at trusting God. He's in Hebrews 11 as this picture of what incredible faith is. Yet he's a person. A flawed person just like you, just like me. And that shows. And he takes no accountability for his actions. And there's no responsibility on her part or his part. In fact, look at kind of what happens, right? So when Sarah comes to him and he says, God's not giving us any kids, right? I want you to take our maidservant. I'm going to build a family through her. And I want you to marry her and sleep with her. A responsible man who just been given a promise by God, looks at his wife and he says, I love you, but God has promised us that he's going to provide for you. We do not need to skip that. We can trust God because he said he would, and we're going to be responsible in saying we're not going to try and create it on our own way. We're going to believe that God will do what he said he's going to do. All right? But what does Abraham do? Or Abram, he says, all right, okay. Takes no responsibility. Well, then it all kind of unravels, right? Hagar gets mad. Sarah comes over and she's like, I gave her to you. Put her in your arms. Now she's pregnant and mad at me. I'm mad at you, right? Which makes total logical sense in marriage, right? Mad at me? What did I do? 
He didn't, well, at the end of the day, he didn't take any responsibility. But so what is his answer? Again, taking no responsibility, no accountability. Well, she's your servant. Well, no, actually, she's your wife. No, she's yours. Do with her what you want. I don't care. Do you see the attitude and heart of no responsibility for our actions, no accountability for the mistakes that we made? Instead of Abraham saying, okay, listen, we probably shouldn't have done that, but we did. She's my wife. She's bearing my child. We are going to be responsible for her. I'm not going to let you just toss her out. or we have to be. This is the path we chose. We're going to walk it, whatever it is. There's no accountability, no responsibility. And so then what does Sarah do in response? She mistreats her. Because Abraham doesn't take any responsibility or any action. So we've got this impatiently, not willing to wait on the Lord. We're going to be impatient. We're going to let pride kind of stir this whole pot of mess. And then we're going to take no accountability and no responsibility for our actions. And then what happens? The final straw is that Sarai allows resentment to control her heart. She's so angry at the situation. First, that God wouldn't give her any kids. Second, that Abraham somehow messed up her great plan. And third, that Hagar now is mad at her. And so what does she green light in her own heart? What does her resentment allow her to do? Her resentment allows her to alter her behavior. And so she mistreats her. She's, and, and again, we're going to see this mistreatment not as like, hey, fatty, fatty, but like she's going to mistreat her enough to where Hagar wants to run, right? Yeah, I don't know. There's not a lot of description here. We've got to make up a few things on our own and figure out what they're doing. But as we're going to see, it's got to be significant, right? Like, what makes you run? Okay, let's, let's get off the rails for just one second. Any of you amazing women, my wife will be included, have ever been pregnant in the summer, right? Chantel's here. She's pregnant. We're pregnant in the summer. It's hot. What would cause you to run into the desert as a pregnant woman in the summer, right? Something pretty bad. It's not somebody being like, hey, you got long toes or whatever. Like, no, I can handle that. That's got to be really mistreated to want to run into the desert as a pregnant woman in the middle of summer in the Middle East. Basically, you're saying, I'd rather go die out here than whatever's happening in my home. That's significant, right? We'll get to that in a minute. So, so Sarah allows this resentment to control her actions. She becomes so bitter at God, so bitter at Abraham, and so bitter at Hagar that she begins to let her actions get affected. You can see how this happens even in her own life. We become so bitter at our spouse or so bitter at our workplace or so bitter at the world or at the, the, the at politics or at the president or at whatever it is that we allow it to control our behavior. And that resentment, as I mentioned, leads to one place, and that is death. It leads to spiritual death. It leads to physical death. It leads to emotional death. It leads to death of marriage. It leads to death of relationship. It leads to death. So the problems and pitfalls that we see that lead up to the situation are significant. We become impatient waiting on God's promises and so we take matters into our own hands. We don't like the outcome or even when we do, we become prideful in our circumstances and situations. That pride breeds contentment around us. We don't take responsibility or accountability for our own actions. And we let resentment lead to a place where it controls our actions and everything unfolds. That's the problems and pitfalls and the things we've got to war against. So if we look at that story to that, we could technically kind of end this sermon and do this whole thing on, hey, don't let those things happen. But there's so much more in this story that's so cool, right? So Hagar is sort of the, she's not the hero. She's like the, she's like the victim hero, kind of a weird role that she plays, right? Because she is a center of the story. But at the end of the day, Hagar's really a victim here. I mean, her whole life is a bit of a mistreated mess. It's a big picture of suffering, actually. So if you look at this story through her heart, 
it's actually pretty catastrophic. Think about it for a moment. So, so Hagar is emotionally abandoned her whole life. As far as we know, she's probably really young. There's no way that she's probably over 20, right? She, most of the time, these servants were given as young children to be part of the household and to be raised into the household. She was given by Pharaoh when they were in Egypt to Sarai as a maidservant. So at some point in time, she was a servant of Pharaoh or in the Egyptian household, and they gave her away. So she was emotionally abandoned by Pharaoh or by whatever that circumstance was. And whoever her family was before that had either sold her or given her away as well. So she gets abandoned by Pharaoh to go with Sarah. She travels out of Egypt to this new land of Canaan in which she's in a foreign family as a servant girl to Sarah. And Sarah has some problems of her own. So what does she do? She takes Hagar and she says... I'm no longer going to be caring for you like I was. You're going to go and you're going to lay with my husband and you're going to become his wife without your own desires, wants, or needs. In other words, I'm going to abandon the post you were in and I'm giving you a new one and there's not a lot you can say about it. And then things go sideways for her. She does exactly what she said she would do. She gets pregnant and Sarah gets really mad at her and begins to mistreat her. And what does Abram do when he could have stood up and said, hey, we're not treating anybody like this around here? He says, I don't care. Do what you want to with her. He abandons her. Her husband, whose child she is carrying. Like Hagar is suffering. She is emotionally abandoned for the majority of her life by everybody she's possibly known. That's just true. No wonder she got a little prideful in the middle of all this because the life that she's known is one of being constantly abandoned. Everybody that I loved or everybody that I knew or everybody that I serve, they just want what's best for them. I've been given away multiple times, given away by my family, given away by Pharaoh, given away by Sarah, given away by Abram. Her whole life is one of just being abandoned. She's also physically mistreated, right? Or at least, very least, physically exhausted, but most likely physically mistreated. Because that word that says, as we just mentioned, then Sarai mistreated her. There has got to be a lot going on for Hagar to want to run out into the desert and essentially die. That's what she's doing. She's running away from the household, carrying the child of her husband, Fleeing into the desert in the Middle East is not a place you go to now survive as a single pregnant female in the middle of the desert. That's something you go to do to die. And so whatever was happening in the home there with Sarah was so significant that it chased Hagar into the wilderness to essentially say, I am better here dying than I am back there. I think it's physical. I think that it's all kinds of things were probably unfolding there, but the way the early centuries treated servants was not good, right? And so you can see this sort of unfold, that she's been emotionally abandoned. She's now at a place where no one stands up for her. She's physically mistreated. She runs out in the desert, and she's also got to be. And again, our text doesn't say this directly, but you can kind of infer it. She's got to be spiritually wounded. Think about this for a moment. There is one family on the face of the earth in which God has chosen to make himself known at this point in time in history. One family. 
And that is Abram's family and his extended family and servants. They are the only family that God has made himself known to. So everyone that knows about the Lord is known from because Abram and his wife and his extended family have told them. And so Hagar has heard the stories of the God that has delivered them. The God that has been kind and good and brought them out of Egypt and done all these incredible things and led Pharaoh out of the father's household into these new places. Or led uh, Abram out of his father's household into these new places. All the promises in which Abraham comes back and says, I have seen a vision of the Lord. Everything that Hagar knew about who this God was had come from Abram and Sarah. And what she learned in a few moments is that those people aren't who she thought they were. Have you ever been completely destroyed or had your heart destroyed by someone that you believed was so righteous or so good and it turned out that they were just as sinful as the rest of us? And our understanding of God is reflected through our understanding of Abram and Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah have really blown this one. And so this is the God that she's supposed to love and serve and care for a God that allows these things to happen to her, a God that mistreats her essentially through them. I mean, Sarah, Hagar's suffering. She's hurting, right? She is wounded and she is broken and she is just wanting to be done. And so she collapses or lays down by this well, essentially just physically exhausted or beat, emotionally abandoned and spiritually wounded. And then this incredible picture unfolds, right, about the nature and character of God. Remember, she's essentially a throwaway. She is a servant girl out of Egypt who's basically been used by everybody in her life to get whatever it else is they want. And yet God pursues her out into the wilderness and to this well, and he has this encounter with her. And the encounter with her is really crazy, right? So she runs away being mistreated. And it's verse seven says, an angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, a spring that's beside this road to Shur. And he says, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? Which of course is such a rhetorical question, right? Because of course God knows. God knows where she is. He knew where to find her. When he says find, it doesn't mean like God's like, oh, hey, look, there's Sarah. I had no idea we're looking for her. He knows, right? God is he is omniscient. He knows all things. But he often uses this language in Scripture in which he goes in pursuing of. Because God pursues and God finds. The idea of the lost sheep is a perfect example of this. Right? When the sheep wanders, God pursues. And when God pursues, God finds. But God always does it in his right and perfect time. And so he lets Hagar wander out into the wilderness with all of her suffering, as he slowly pursues her, and at the right time, he finds her. Now, he's always known where she is, but by find, I mean, lets her know that he is there. And God does this to us a lot. He allows us to wander. He allows us to wrestle. And at the right time, he reveals his presence to us. Happens all the time in Scripture. Remember the road to Emmaus? Jesus is walking with the guys as they're downtrodden and broken, saying, we can't believe we thought Jesus was going to be the one who was going to redeem all of Israel. And Jesus is walking with them and doesn't tell them. And Cleopas stops and his heart is broken and his soul is downcast. And Jesus lets him be sad. And then at the right time, in the right moment, he reveals himself. And this is exactly what's happening with Hagar. She's laying in desperation by this well. And the angel of the Lord shows up and he says, servant of 
Sarah, where are you coming from and where are you going? And it's a rhetorical question, right? It's a rhetorical question to show that this dialogue, this relationship, this is a God who has only shown himself to Abraham at this point in time. Now reveals himself to an angel of the Lord to Hagar. Where are you coming from? In other words, he's having this real honest conversation with a young woman whose heart is shattered and whose life is falling apart. He knows where she's coming from. But he lets her in those moments have this thing where it's like, do you really care enough to ask? Nobody ever asks me what I want, where I'm coming from, where I'm going. No one cares about me like that. Where are you, where are you coming from? She's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. Right? And he says, don't do that. Go back to her and I will provide for you. I see your suffering. He basically says, I see what you're going through. Actually calls it her misery, right? He says, I have seen your misery. I'm going to increase your descendants. I'm going to give you a life. I'm going to give you a son. And not going to be easy because there's some challenges that happen with those problems that started all this. But I'm going to bless you is what he's basically telling her. And for Sarah, or for Hagar, who's never had anyone, right, say that to her, this is an incredible moment. God has, has pursued her, this God that she probably wondered whether he was real or not, in the midst of all of these things, pursues her and finds her, and then tells her that he sees her suffering. I have seen your misery. In other words, your misery and suffering have not gone unnoticed. I know what you're walking through. I will, I promise, I will provide and protect you. And there's this incredible moment where this is so deeply comforting for her. Whatever this exchange is, is so deeply comforting for Hagar, right, that she gives this name to the Lord. Most of the names that we see from God in Scripture, he gives himself. Yahweh, Adonai, Elohim, El. These are all names that God gives himself. But she gives him this name and God seems to accept it. Right? She says, I have given him this name. Essentially, she gives him this name, El Roy. El being God, Roy being the God who see, being the one who sees me. In other words, I'm going to call you because I don't know what else to call you. I'm going to call you the God who sees me. And what she's not saying is like, sees me physically over there by the well, but the God who sees into my soul and who knows my suffering. The God who understands that I'm broken and sees my misery and promises to never leave me. And she says this, I have seen the one who sees me. And they name the well, essentially, so all people will know. Beher Lahai Roy, right? The well of the living and the one who sees. She has this incredible moment where she just begins to believe these promises of God. And how do we know she believes them? Because she gets up and she goes straight back to Sarah. The one that was mistreating her to that incredible mess she just left. God said to return, and she does. Because she had had a true encounter with the Lord. So if you look at it through, through her heart, right, you see this spiritual sort of emotional wounds, this physical abuse or mistreatment at least, and then this spiritual wounds, and you see God show up in the middle of all this, <coughs> excuse me, pursue and find her, see her suffering, and allow her to know that she's not alone, and then make these incredible great promises. And this is this beautiful picture that we have in Scripture of who God is, right? This is not just a, something that happens with Hagar. You can trace this movement through all of Scripture that God, right, 
even in the midst of all of our mistakes, it's not perfect, prideful, whatever, even in the midst of the mistakes of the world around us, sin, God knows all about the pitfalls and the problems, even in the midst of all of those, and all of our, maybe, maybe you've walked through some of the things uh, Hagar's walked through. Maybe you've been emotionally abandoned in your life. Maybe you feel like there have been everybody or lots of people in your life have walked out on you. Maybe your, your parents' marriage ended really early or maybe you felt like someone in your life left you or maybe you're part of a, a divorce you didn't want to be a part of or maybe you felt times in your life like people that matter just never seem to show up and you feel emotionally abandoned or maybe you've been in a life that has been physically mistreated. Maybe you've experienced part of that as your childhood, that, that reality of what that means to live in fear. Or maybe somewhere along the way you've been really spiritually wounded. Someone that you loved or trusted or believed in, right, turned out to not be who they said they were. Or they led you down a path to be discouraged in your heart about how could God do this if this part. It's probably all of us at some point in time. In the middle of all that, right, in the middle of all those mistakes and all those struggles in our own heart and all those fears, God shows up in this incredibly beautiful way not to accuse Hagar of running, like, why are you running? He just says, where are you coming from and where are you going? And I feel like those are questions that God has asked me so many times and I'm on a dead sprint away from him. He's like, where, where are you going from? Where, where are you leaving from? Where, do you, where are you headed? Like, what's happening here? And I'm like, I don't know. I just can't stay where I am. And he's like, yes, you can. I've never left you, never forsake you. I know where you are. I know where you lie down. I know where your hurt is. I see your suffering. I know you're afraid. This is the voice of God. This is the picture of Jesus literally pursuing lost sheep. He finds that lost sheep, and instead of berating that lost sheep, saying, I can't believe you wandered from the pack. You are a loser sheep. He says, grabs that thing, puts it on his shoulders, take it home, and when he gets home, he throws this incredible party. Not because the sheep wandered, but because the sheep was found. And so in his promises and his protection, right, his grace, and he knowing our suffering, he sees our soul, knows what we deeply need, and then makes these great promises. The question that we have and we end all this with is, what's my response to a God like that? Is it just a simple thank you? It's got to be obedience. It's got to be yes. It's got to be my actions have to fall in line with what my heart believes about God. That's exactly what Hagar did. God said, I will give you these things. And she said, I believe you. And she gets up and she walks back into the middle of chaos. And it does. It works out. It's complicated, but it works out. But she was willing to walk back into the middle of chaos to follow the God that had shown up in the middle of her life. This is what it means to truly follow Jesus. Sometimes we have to walk back into chaos. God doesn't promise to iron everything out. He doesn't promise to fix all of our problems. He promises to prevail in them. He never promises to protect us from all of life's struggles and hurts and abandonments and mistreatments. He never promises to make everything easy, but he always promises to prevail in it. He is victorious. He is warrior God. And that's the great promise is that he knows you. You've not been lost or abandoned. He sees you. He is El Roy, the God who sees me. The God who sees me. In the sea of people, God sees me. He knows my misery. And he makes great promises and he pours out his grace. And I want to know and follow that God. That is the nature and character of a God who loves, who not only sees, but promises to protect and care and provide and lead. That is a God that deserves and demands our worship and our very lives.
Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the reality of this text and truth, that both the complexity and the simplicity of it all rolled into one. The challenge is there in uh, dealing with the truth that life is really hard at times, yet you are a God who always knows, always sees, always provides, always redeems. You are a God who chases and pursues and finds. There is nowhere that we can go that we are too lost, too far gone. You are a rescuing God. You don't berate, you don't belittle, you ask beautiful questions. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? I see you. I know you're suffering. I am the one who sees you. In a sea of humanity that you may feel lost in or a group of people that you may feel like you have no voice in, there is a God who sees and knows you. No matter what your wounds, no matter what your suffering, no matter what your hurt, there is a God who sees and a God who knows. Even with the pitfalls and problems, even the ones you may have brought upon yourself, God's promises are the same. He sees, he knows, he loves, he cares. He wants to rescue. So Lord, as we close our time in worship and prepare to transition to get out of our worship and walk straight into the beautiful picture of baptism, which is death to life, new life in Christ, making professions of this truth. Let us be reminded that not only do you see, but you call. And that you call and that you save and that you save and that you redeem and that you set us up for a life full of abundance. The person that trusts you. And so God, we place all of our hope in you, our Savior and our Redeemer, Jesus, our Lord. Be glorified in our worship. Let's stand together and close our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Directly following this song, we're going to encourage you to go as quickly as you can to join us outside as we're going to celebrate the baptism of three amazing young people this morning and uh, get to celebrate the truth of the gospel as seen through the actual picture of going from life to death. But let's close our time in worship this morning.
Let's all go out and celebrate these baptisms together.